you're listening to Going Places. I'm your host, Kara Orbell. I initially started this podcast to learn more about the ins and outs of travel. Eventually, I discovered there's so much more to a person than where they go. My goal is to learn more from people who are going places. I've interviewed community leaders, entrepreneurs, veterans, authors, and experts who tell fascinating stories and give amazing advice. Thanks for tuning in, and I can't wait to see where you go. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Going Places. Today, I have Greg Martin on my show. Greg Martin is a two-star general in the U.S. Army who served for over 35 years. He actually graduated from West Point Academy and went on to get two master's degrees and a Ph.D. from MIT. He started serving in Germany, but he actually had a triggering point for bipolar depression in Iraq in 2003. Um, His mental illness ended up going undiagnosed for years until he ended up resigning as president of the National Defense University. He was huge in the military. He had amazing accomplishments. Um, And two weeks after resigning, he fell into deep depression and psychosis. It took two years for Greg to discover the right medication to balance his neurochemistry. And today, Greg is on Going Places to share this story as a veteran and share his journey with bipolar depression. I want to let you know beforehand that he is extremely open about his difficult journey with bipolar depression, and he does mention suicidal ideation in case this is something you do not want to hear. However, if you are struggling, just know there are people out there to help you, and there are resources you can find for mental health and bipolar depression specifically. I hope you like this episode. He's extremely fascinating and he is really changing the game with everything he's doing. So thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you like this episode. Thanks. Bye. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Going Places. I'm your host, Kara Orbell. And today I have a very special guest. I'm talking to Greg Martin. I'm going to include an intro, but Greg Martin is a two-star general who served in the military for 35 years. And he is here today to discuss his journey and his upcoming book, Battling Bipolar Disorder, A General's Invisible War, where he shares his incredible journey and his difficult fight with bipolar disorder. So thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, of course. Um, First, I want to start by just saying thank you so much for your service. Your story is incredible. Do you mind sharing just a little bit more about why you decided to join the army in the first place? Um, Yeah, I decided to join the army when I was 18 years old. And the primary hook that got me into the army was the free education uh, opportunity to travel adventure challenge uh, by going to West Point. And so I looked at that total package and said, that looks really good to me and uh, went there. And by going through the four years of education at West Point, you incur a service obligation of five years active duty. And so my goal was, okay, I'll do the five years, then I'll leave the army and go do something in the civilian world. And, uh, but I got out in the army and just fell in love with the soldiers, the mission, you know, being a part of this great team called the U.S. Army. And I just got hooked. And, you know, I just kept, then after that, after the first five years, kept going from job to job, uh, assignment to assignment. And before you knew it, I had 35 years. Wow. That's incredible. I think that's an interesting way because you definitely used those resources of education and travel. Do you mind diving in a little bit more about that? I know you met your wife in Germany and you learned German. Can you briefly discuss that? Sure. Um, So I graduated from West Point and my first, after some initial schooling, my first duty assignment was to Germany and it was called West Germany in those days because the Cold War was going on. So you had West Germany, East Germany, the Americans and NATO were on the West German side and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact were on the East German side. So they had these huge armies facing off against each other. And so that's, that's where I got assigned and I was a platoon leader and a company commander and some other jobs uh, leading soldiers. And we had, as, as an engineer unit, we had uh, two big mission sets. One was our wartime mission where we did classic combat engineering missions of putting in obstacles and protective fighting positions and so forth for 
mostly armor, infantry, artillery. And, uh, and then during the warm, dry, sunny construction season, we built projects for allied forces. So anyway, I was stationed in Darmstadt, Germany, and we also had the opportunity to take our soldiers on trips, like adventure trips, travel, um, sports, skiing, things like that. And uh, the lady who ran the travel program was a mutual friend of myself and who ended up being my wife, Maggie. And she asked each of us, hey, you know, I know this really nice young lady. Would you like to meet her? Oh, I know this cool guy. Would you like to meet, meet him? So we met on a blind date. And uh, in the uh, winter of 1981, and then we just dated, hung out, traveled, had a whole lot of fun, and then got married two years later. But uh, it, I mean, we traveled like crazy. We skied. We went on sailing trips. It was really amazing and wow. a lot of fun. Is it true that you ran seven half marathon or seven full marathons in under three hours? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I became a, I was um, always a track runner and athlete in high school and college. And so at West Point, I was on the track team and I, I was on the triathlon team. When we went, we got to Europe. I said, hey, I'm going to up my game and start training competitively for marathons. And so I did seven over a few years and all under three. My personal record was a 236. So I was a really good runner. And that helped me a lot in the Army being a good runner because that's, you know, considered, you know, it's pretty important to be in yeah. good shape as an as a Army leader. Yeah. And, uh, and then I also did uh, 10Ks, 5Ks, 3Ks, and really kind of elevated up to being kind of a championship level caliber for U.S. Army Europe. So it was a that's, lot of fun. That's incredible. We travel, we travel quite a bit to go to the marathons. Two of them, at least two, were um, the marathon to Athens, the original run. So we started in marathon in Greece, and we ran up over the mountain range into Athens, and we finished in the Olympic, the original Olympic Stadium. That was pretty cool. Wow. That's incredible. I just wanted to note that because I'm training for a half marathon. And so I that stood out to me, but I do want to get into more of your story and more of your experiences. So you mentioned this chapter of your life when you were younger and just moving from school to the army to more school and more or army as kind of a life without downtime. And you use the quote, find your horses and ride them because you were just moving around. How did this army way kind of start? Do you think this was a start to your mental health journey? Maybe. Um, what I think is, you know, I was, I would say very healthy, mentally healthy, doing extremely well from my teenage years in high school, all the way through West Point, all the way through the army, probably up until it didn't start getting bad probably until about 2003 when I was a brigade commander in Iraq. That, that high stress event triggered the bipolar disorder. And then it just sort of took off from there for the next 10 years. But I've done some research even since I sent you the uh, manuscript and there's a uh, a mood phenomenon co called hyperthymia. And okay. I had never heard of it. And hyperthymia, you've got mania. Mm -hmm. And then below mania, you have hypomania, which is a lower level of mania. And then below hypomania, you have hyperthymia, which means you're over emotion. It's a Greek combination of words, but you're, you're over emotionally where most people are. And I, after doing the research and looking at my personality versus the description of hyperthymia, and I consulted with a pretty renowned psychiatrist who looked at my case, I'm pretty certain I had hyperthymia, which meant I was up just about all the time, overly happy, enthusiastic, energetic, um, you know, all those things that I described in the book. And I think I had that probably from about age 13 all the way till I was in my mid forties. And mm -hmm. it helped me perform at a much higher level. I mean, I was just happy and enthusiastic and energetic to an incredible degree 
all the time, every single day. I didn't need much sleep. Um, I felt wonderful. People enjoyed working for me. I was you know, good on the team. But all those years in that mood state, moving at that energy level, you know, year in and year out, probably had a toll and helped move me towards eventual bipolar. I, mm -hmm. I think it probably did. Um, the, the science of understanding bipolar disorder is, is not all that strong. I mean, we don't really know why people get it or why some get it, why others don't get it. Uh, I did get it. Why did I get it when I did and not earlier or not later? Nobody really knows. <laughs> About as much as we know is that people have a genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder and it tends to be triggered by trauma and stress. And the trauma and stress, in my case, it was the high stress of the war. Mm -hmm. uh, for other people, they'll, they can maybe, it can get triggered by drug abuse, alcohol abuse, extended periods of uh, really below, uh, not enough sleep, um, a, a terrible car crash, a death of a loved one, a sexual assault. All those things can be the triggering event for bipolar. But I think my decades of accumulated lack of sleep, high drive, high energy, probably contributed slowly towards the culmination in Iraq to where all of a sudden the bipolar was triggered and, you know, the, the switch flipped and I had it. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting that you say the, the, you made the connection between hyperthymia, hypothymia, and from your time before the war and when you were younger into full bipolar disorder. And I know that you weren't diagnosed fully until you were 58. Can you talk about why it was so difficult to be diagnosed and your journey experiencing it from 2003 onward, but really being diagnosed in 2014? Yeah, first of all, it's bipolar by definition is very hard to diagnose. And the reason is uh, the traits of bipolar, they sort of interweave and blend in and hide themselves with your normal personality traits. So for me, for example, um, once the bipolar kicked in, my energy, which had already been high, went higher. My enthusiasm mm -hmm. became higher. Everything went higher, but so people in the army and my wife and family, they just sort of looked at me and they're like, okay, you know, he's just kind of the same way he always was. They didn't notice much of a difference. I just seemed maybe a little wackier, a little, a little kookier, but, <laughs> um, but nothing significant until it got really bad. And then National Defense University, they kind of rebelled and, you know, pretty much got me out of the job. Mm -hmm. um, but it's difficult to test and to diagnose. And when you have bipolar, even sometimes you might be intensely manic where you're, you're literally crazy. I mean, you're insane. You're mad. Mm -hmm. You might be horrible. You might be really depressed. You may have delusions, but then you'll have other periods of time where you're completely normal. So you're, you can go to work. You feel totally normal. You carry on rational conversations. You do your work. And then maybe a day or two later, you boom, you'll flash into mania. And you might not be at work when you flash into mania. You may be downtown or at a pro baseball game or out riding your bike and you go crazy. Um, so it is. And the other thing is for a psychiatrist, if all they're doing is sitting with you in their office and talking to you, they're not seeing the 360 degree perspective of who you are. So like when I went in and saw the first three psychiatric visits, I was perfectly fine. I mean, I carried on, you know, really intelligent conversations with these guys. I think they were probably a little intimidated that I was a general. Um, and, you know, they never expected to see a general who had really bad bipolar disorder. So all of those things contributed to 
them misdiagnosing and not seeing my true condition. Now, if they had gotten all the complaints from the NDU people that went to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, like if they'd have gotten that treasure trove of comments saying, this guy's nuts, then they may have diagnosed me differently, but that didn't happen. And I don't know if that was a breakdown of that particular, those particular doctors, or if it's a systemic breakdown of like not crossing certain HIPAA laws where, you know, you have medical laws and regulations. I, I don't know. I, I should probably find the answer to that, but I don't, I don't know. Um, but it is, it is hard for the doctors. The thing that was an icebreaker uh, where they finally said, yes, you have bipolar is they saw me three times in July of 2014. And each time they said, Hey, you're perfectly healthy. You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You're fit for duty. And, uh, at one of the meetings, my wife was there and she said, you know, I think he has, he's demonstrating mania. He's, he's, you know, crazy. He's showing signs of craziness. And she gave some examples and they took notes and everything, but since they weren't seeing it, they didn't diagnose me with mania. But then four months later, when I had crashed into horrible, horrible depression, then they said, the lights went on, bing. And they just went, oh, you're now severely depressed. Your wife said you had mania before. That sounds like bipolar. I, and they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder type one. It was that simple. Um, so it's kind of funny the way it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your story is really interesting because you had a really significant job change and it was because of the difficulties that you were having with your mental health, but you still were not being diagnosed. They still weren't seeing that side of you. And it really shines a light on one diagnoses for veterans and people in the army, but two, how psych psychiatrists are able to recognize this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, tie in the other thing that go in, if you may be asking about this later is once they do make a diagnosis, now remember, I, I was triggered in 2003 in Iraq. I mean, that <laughs> happened. And the Army Medical Department and the VA confirmed that that was the triggering event. Um, and then I went from 2003 to 2014 with no diagnosis. So that's 11 years. So it took 11 years before anybody connected the dots and said, hey, this guy's crazy. He's nuts, you know, we need to get him in to see, get medical help. And um, that is not uncommon. It can take typically 10 to 12 years. And then the other th tricky thing is once they diagnose you with bipolar, there's no magic formula that says, okay, Kara has bipolar. Hmm, let's look on this chart. Oh, let's give her this medicine. That'll help her do better. No, no, no. There's loads of different medications and nobody knows which ones are going to work for you and which ones are going to work for me. Like what works for you that makes you better might not work for me and vice versa. And so it's this guessing game that they try, they try things and then you have to let them take hold in the brain and then see, well, how did it do? Did it, did it work? Did it fix it? Yes, no. And in most cases, this can take years to get um, a, a proper um, uh, prescription of medications that work. I actually think I was pretty lucky because once they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder type one in November of 2014, they nailed it with lithium two years later. Mm. And you say, well, two years is a long time. And yeah, it is. I mean, I lived in hell for two years, but the good news is they found the right medication that works for me. And I've been great now for, you know, since September of 2016. I mean, I haven't had a bad day. I mean, not a bad day. I, and I'm like happy every day. Wow. I'm not manic. I'm not depressed. I'm not delusional. Everything is good. And, you know, so I was fortunate. And lithium doesn't work for everybody, though. Um, so that's another tricky piece of it. And the other bad thing is this bipolar can come roaring back mm -hmm. pretty much whenever it wants. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're kind of in a forever war against it. And so you have to keep your defenses strong and ready and vigilant 
and I'll probably, you'll probably ask about that. Uh, but I mean, you know, you got to stay healthy, mind, body, spirit. You have to get your sleep, proper diet, take your medications meticulously, you know, religiously every single day mm-hmm. and be able to relax and not let things stress you out or it can come back and kick your butt all over again. Wow. I want to dive into what you called this hell, which you probably don't want to, but from 2014 to 2016, this was pretty much your lowest points, starting from when you had to resign from your role as president of the National Defense University. How was that experience when you were sent into your boss's office and they basically said, pack up your things? I mean, how... Was that the catalyst that kind of drove you down the path? Great question. I mean, I, I, I would love to talk about it. Um, so it may have been a bit of a catalyst to propel me a little bit more quickly into depression, but I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is, I had gone into peak mania. I had been absolutely insane for about three months. I mean, nuts. And I cover a lot of it in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, So I was wacko. And with bipolar, when you go into mania, it's not a matter of if, but when you are going to crash into depression. It It will happen. I mean, it's like Newton's law of gravity. You go up. You defy gravity for a while and you're going to come down. So I was going to crash into severe depression regardless of what happened. I could have crashed into severe depression um, even before they let me go from NDU. Mm -hmm. Like it could have happened instead of July, it could have happened in June or May because I had been intensely manic for quite a while. Um, And then in July, General Dempsey, you know, he removed me from the position. It was basically Greg... Your time at NDU is over. Uh, you you uh, you have until 5 p.m. today to submit your letter of resignation, or I will fire you. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and he was very compassionate because if he had just fired me, it has significant implications for your pay, your retirement pay, your follow-on, the way you're treated. So he was very uh, merciful and kind to me by allowing me to resign. Because then if you resign, there's no ramifications, you just resigned, as opposed to being fired or you know uh, demoted or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think I would, have tur- I would have gone into depression regardless with 100% certainty. Uh, you know, maybe the, the removal from NDU might've, might've sped it up a little bit, but, uh, but it was four months before I really, really crashed badly. Um, you know, the experience going into his office and, you know, I love General Dempsey, love him to this day. And he wrote a great foreword to the book, which I think you saw. Mm-hmm. He's a fabulous guy. Uh, he's a, kind of a warrior poet, very intellectual, but a great warfighter, uh, funny, sense of humor, friendly, chari- you know, great charisma, fun to be around. People love to be in his unit because he, he was really just great to be with. Um, and so he had been my boss, my mentor, my friend, going back all the way to 1997 when mm-hmm. I was at Fort Leonard Wood. And uh, so I knew him really well. And then he picked me for these big jobs because he knew I was a transformational leader and could change stuff the way he wanted it. So he was shocked when he started hearing these reports about how I was going, you know, going crazy. And had become, you know, really kind of a bad leader who had lost trust of my people. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I I think it really pained him to get rid of me, but he he really methodically uh, he had, he he created three different assessment teams. One team to go in and assess what the students were seeing and thinking and feeling, and another team to go in and assess how the faculty were thinking and feeling. And then another one that came in at the end and just sort of did a cleanup of how's everybody at NDU thinking and feeling. And he got these back briefs and it was a hundred percent. Okay. Martin has lost it. There's something emotionally and psychologically and mentally wrong with him. And so Dempsey said, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what's wrong with you, but I, I know you need mental health and I can't leave you there. 
And so he said, by the way, you did a great job. I'll give you an A plus for the work you did. Uh, you did in two years what I, I don't know anybody else that could have done it in 10 years. So you did a fantastic job, but I got I to gotta move you out. I got to get a new quarterback. <laughs> and I was really manic. I had a great conversation with him in his office. I mean, we were joking around, had a great talk. And, uh, and I didn't feel bad at all. And that's a reflection mm -hmm. of the mania. I mean, I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel shocked. I didn't feel disappointed. I didn't feel down. I was like up. I was thinking, wow, okay, I'm getting released from NDU. Now I can go on to bigger and better things. God has bigger things for me. You know, and I started getting these visions of these grandiose visions of what the next mission from God was going to be that I was going to grab a hold of and tackle and go change the world. And that's the nature of mania. You have a sense of grandiosity. You have the sense that you are on direct mission from God. You have a sense of religiosity, which is like, you know, religion spiraled up to a whole new level. And I talked about that in the book, too. And I was I was really, really out there. So I left his office. I gave him a big hug. I'm like, hey, General Dempsey, thank you. This has been great. Great working for you. I'm getting I'm ready now to go tackle an even bigger mission. And I'm, I'm sure he's thinking, like, oh, my God, there is something wrong with this guy. <laughs> but uh but it, 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 it all worked out. And uh, you could see from his forward that he's a big, big supporter. Mm -hmm. You know, General Dempsey, he did his job correctly. He had a terrible situation that had developed because of my bipolar. It was affecting the mission of the university. He, he had to do something to get the university back on track and put that back together. And he had to do something to get me into professional medical help. So he did exactly the right thing. And um, I, I think he handled it perfectly. And if I was in his shoes, I would have done the exact same thing. Very interesting. I think that's, that's a good story. And I didn't, I didn't know the extent of that experience that you faced with the mania. I didn't, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah. It was really interesting. I think I covered it a little bit in the book. He, uh, he said, uh, so Greg, what do you, th so I told him, I said, Hey, I, we had this very good discussion. I said, well, you know, sir, you brought me in here to, you know, uh, Institute change. You gave me a blueprint for change. You know, my instructions were be aggressive, get after it, make stuff happen. Um, and so I did, and I ran into a lot of opposition, bureaucratic, slow rolling, uh, people just didn't want to change. So they started undercutting me in the media and it's so on and so forth, which is normal stuff when you're changing organizations at a high level. Mm -hmm. I said, now I've made, I've made all these changes. I said, you know, you talked about Dempsey said, Hey, you've taken the ball from the end zone to the red zone. You're a football fan. So he, yeah. said, he said, now I need a new quarterback to get it into the end zone again. I said, hey, sir, I've gone further than the red zone, man. I'm on like the 98-yard line. I mean, I am going to – I am going to – I'm on the two-yard line. I'm ready to punch this thing in. <laughs> Give me one more year, and I will have it done. I mean, I've gotten rid of a lot of the bad apples. I've moved people aside. I've gotten lots of new blood. Things are really looking up. And he just smiled, and he looked at me. He said, I guess you're telling me you're Sisyphus. And uh, I had to go back and look it up. But Sisyphus is Greek mythology. It's this Greek guy who pushes a boulder up to the top of a hill. And all he needs is one more push to get it over the crest of the hill. And then it would roll down the other side, which is what he wanted. And that every time he'd get to the top of the hill, he'd lose grip on the boulder and it would roll back down to the mm -hmm. bottom. He said, yeah, I guess you, you tell me you're like Sisyphus. He said, well, you know, <laughs> he said, well, you know, you've got to go anyway. And so we had a big laugh about it. It was, mm -hmm. it was really, it was really fun. It was a reflection of his personality and mine. I mean, we had great trust in each other. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, other people might've, you know, had a, been all bummed out and cried or, you know, you know, had a big emotional event. I mean, it wasn't at all, not at all. It, the emotion didn't hit me probably till about a week later. But I probably, I was still in mania, but I started probably spiraling down into depression. And then I started getting angry and bitter, not against General Dempsey, but against people who had, you know, set me up for the fall. Mm -hmm. But that Did was delusional you? too, because the reason that, that 
it wasn't their fault that I went manic and went crazy. It, it just happened to me. And so those people who pulled the strings to get me removed, in a sense, really did the right thing because I needed to go. Hmm. It was an unhealthy situation. Yeah. Yeah. When you were spiraling downward, were you, were you able to feel the mania kind of leaving in your body's, even your body's, does your bio, does the biochemistry of your body change when you're experiencing the highs and lows? Yes. And yes. Oh, so I could feel different. I went, I was still high as a kite with, you know, the removal. Mm -hmm. Then it started converting, still in a manic state. Like mania, remember, has a happy, enthusiastic element to it, which is the most, you know, predominant. But it also has an agitated, angry, even rage side of mania. And I transitioned over the next few weeks into agitation, anger, rage, just crazy rage and you know direct in my mind directed back at the people at NDU and I definitely felt a change um my body started feeling different I, I went from being this happy thing to you know anger and rage and then as remember so in the mania I'm way up here and then I started slowly spiraling down, like say during the month of August, and then mm -hmm. further during the month of September. And then October I crashed, and then September I uh, November I crashed more, and I just kept crashing and crashing. And what that really was is that my brain biochemistry had shifted. So in the, mm -hmm. in the course of my mania, the parts of the brain that produce the happy drugs like dopamine, um, serotonin, endorphins, and there's others, they're pumping and creating and distributing those drugs or chemicals at a very, very high level. So your brain is on fire. I mean, in these uh, brain spec scans that they do, your brain lights up into orange and yellow and red because there's so much electricity and chemistry going on. But as it descends out of mania and goes into normal state, it's probably more, I, I, I can't remember, I think it's kind of a greenish color for the most part. But then when it goes into depression and the brain starts shutting down and the, the dopamine and the chemicals are not being produced and distributed in the requisite fashion, the brain coloring turns blue, dark, dark blue, dark purple, and black. So you, your brain literally is shutting down and it's incapable. You, you're incapable of being happy and optimistic and energetic. You, you can't, you physically cannot be that because in order to be that, those chemicals have to be doing their thing inside your brain. I, I guess I never realized until I did a lot of research and talked to a lot of psychiatrists, I didn't realize how much moods are a function of the physical processes in the brain. I always, I, I thought moods were just, oh, hey, you know, I'm happy today. So I'm like, I have these happy thoughts or, oh, I'm sad today. So I have these, ha these sad thoughts. But true mania and true depression are, biochemical processes that create mania or they create mm -hmm. depression. And once you get into these, these status um, of mood, you don't get to get out of them until the regulation of your brain is back in a, in a even keel. Mm -hmm. So when you were figuring out you were in the deepest depths of depression. I mean, how did you find that even keel? Was it, I know you mentioned in your book that it was your motivation to get better. Your wife was a huge factor in the psychiatrist, but can you walk us through your experience with healing and going into recovery? Sure. So I crashed bad in November, 2014 uh, and went into severe depression. I mean, I, it was a struggle every day to get out of bed. Uh, 
my mind was disoriented. I couldn't concentrate. Um, I was, I had uh, very low willpower. Um, I, I was hopeless. I thought my life was over. That it was going to go on forever. It was very, very dark. I started getting delusions of um, passive suicidal ideation. So I was constantly thinking about death and dying. Uh, not that I ever wanted to go kill myself, but my mind would have visions of me dying in a car crash or getting run over by a truck or something <laughs> where I died. And in my mind, the death would be a positive development because it would put me out of my pain and misery and that I was better off dead. And it would give my wife a better um, uh, financial situation because she would get all the financial benefits of me being retired before I got arrested and locked up and put in jail for these mm. delusional crimes I had committed. Mm. I don't know if you remember those in the book. Um, a little bit. So it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And it went on for you know, the better part of two years. Um, I wanted to get better, but I couldn't. Uh, it was after we moved out of DC and I retired in May of 2015, we moved to New Hampshire where we had a house. And New Hampshire is just beautiful. I mean, lakes and mountains and rivers and uh, nature, but it was out in the boonies on the side of a mountain, um, cold, dark winter, ice, snow, and it was not a healthy place for me to live um, because sunshine, sunshine and brightness have a huge therapeutic effect on the brain when you have bipolar. But mm -hmm. the real, the way I started to come out of it was uh, my son really pushed me to confront these delusions that there was a conspiracy against me, this, this uh, delusional Thing that I had committed crimes. And so I went after those and I called the guys up and they told me there was no conspiracy, but I, I didn't believe them. And so I called them back a week later and said, hey, you know, did the police tell you to say that? Um, it was a real weird time where these guys thought I was completely insane, which I was. But the second time I believed them and it broke the back of these criminal conspiracies that were plaguing me. And then shortly after I got into the VA hospital in White River Junction, Vermont, which had a real good psych department. And I went there and I went in the inpatient uh, ward for two weeks. Mm -hmm. That was really, really great. I mean, I, I loved the, uh, the inpatient ward. And I talked a lot about it in the book. You know, they had a team focused on me. So it was really helpful. Mm -hmm. But after two weeks, and they even did, I did, uh, they needed to do electroconvulsive therapy where they put nodes and they, they shock electrical currents through your skull into your brain and create little mini convulsions and uh, to try to shock you out of depression. And uh, so I did a full round of 14 treatments and even that did not break the depression. So I stayed in a very, very depressed state for the next several months and was not, I kept doing the VA therapy and all that, but they didn't want to do lithium because lithium has a lot of negative side effects that you have to carefully manage and monitor. But finally, in the month of August, my wife was just frustrated, you know, at the end of her rope that I was still in a terrible state of depression. And so she called my doctor and said, hey, we got to try something stronger. So I went up there, had a meeting with him. He said, hey, you know, why don't we try the lithium? What do you think? There are downsides, but we got to work through them. So we did. We worked through the downsides, took lithium. And within a week, I started feeling better. After two years of horrible depression, within one week of lithium, and lithium is a natural salt that is mined straight out of the earth. So it's not a chemical produced by big pharma. It's a salt that, uh, that it's Li3 on the chemical periodical table. So if you look at a chemical table, Li3, lithium, and uh, they take it, they, they scoop it out of the earth, they refine it. And it's only been used since 
It's, they started being used in the 1950s in Australia, and then made it to the U.S. in about 1970. And so it doesn't have that long of a history, but it's a, it's a miracle drug for mood stabilization. And it basically, to use kind of an engineering term, it goes into my brain and it has these positive symbiotic effects with you know, my brain circuitry and the places that make and distribute these, these chemicals. And it, it builds a floor such that my mood can't fall below the floor. It can't go inside the, through the floor. So it, if it wants to go down, it bang, it hits in the floor. It stays above the floor level. So I, I have like a bottom level that stays at. And then it has a ceiling. And if it wants to go up into mania, it can't because it bumps into the ceiling. And so it keeps me in this stable zone. So I've had no depression in nearly five years. I have had a little bit of hypomania and a little bit of agitation, which are both evidence of some low level of mania. But I've figured out how to deal with the agitation pretty well. And the hypomania, as long as it's very low and I, it's only a small amount of time, it's actually kind of fun. I kind of like it. It's really, you know, it's, it's sort of a natural intoxicant. And I get it from certain kinds of music, singing karaoke, dancing to like rock and roll music. And uh, that brings me up. And so I have to be a little bit cautious that I don't go, you know, too into the dancing and music because it could be a problem. That's so funny. That's very interesting. Do you notice, I know you're still active. Do you notice like an endorphin rush when you work out? Yes. Okay. Interesting. My big endorphin rush these days is I'm in a dancing class, which, you know, it's, you, you learn all the steps and everything. And I do the dancing and it's got great music, great movement, fun, pe- fun, happy people. And that gives me an endorphin rush. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I didn't expect interviewing an army general to have such a light conversation. I was a little bit nervous for this. <laughs> yeah, the, the class, I've been doing the class for about four years. It took me a while to get the steps down. I am like the only guy in the class and the women are all like, they're really mostly really nice and friendly and stuff like that. So all my best friends are, are ladies from the dancing class. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. I love that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about your mood or not your mood, your move, because you moved from New Hampshire to Cocoa beach. And I, that's basically how we got connected through a mutual friend named Kevin. Shout out to Kevin. But can you talk about your experience moving to Cocoa Beach and how how that had a positive effect on you? Yeah. So we were living up in New Hampshire, um, you know, I, in the um, 2015, 2016, cold. It was just, it was a typical New Hampshire, brutal cold winter. But I have the same thing in Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan. And, um, you know, I had kind of lost, because of the depression, I had lost all my interest. I used to, I was a fanatical skier my whole life. I just, I didn't feel like going skiing. I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to snowshoe. I didn't want to do anything. Um, Because that's what depression does to you. All your interests just, you have no interest anymore. Depression's horrible. And so they diagnosed me at the VA with having seasonal affective disorder, which is kind of a natural byproduct of bipolar disorder. But the doc, I talked to the doctor. I said, hey, would, would I be better off living in a warm, sunny climate? And he said, yes, you would. And so I talked to Maggie and I said, you know, we're Northern people, you know, we've never lived down South. You know, let's, let's think about like Florida, the Gulf Coast, California, Hawaii, let's take a look. And uh, Maggie had been to Florida a few times, she said, well, Florida's a lot closer. Let's, let's scope out Florida. So we took a, a trip, we took about a 10 day trip and I had some friends and family that lived in this area of Brevard County. And um, so we came down here end of April, had a wonderful 10 days, the weather was perfect, blue skies, no humidity, it's just great. And it really helped me, it lifted my spirits being in the sun. And we came back to, we flew into Boston and there was a snowstorm end of April and you know, snow, gray, slush, terrible. And then as we drove to New Hampshire going north, the snow got heavier, more snow on the road. 
the snow plows again. Then we go out to New Hampshire and you had the huge uh, snow banks covered with gray gravel and brown sand and slush everywhere and potholes all over the place filled with slush and mud. And we just looked at each other and said, let's go, let's move. And so we, she started looking for houses and she was determined to live in a beach town, you know, not inland, but on, on the beach. And um, she found a place online. And so we, we, you know, nailed it down. And then the doctor at Vermont said, hey, I don't want you to move until I have you stabilized and you're really in good shape. So then we did the lithium and then he kept me for about three more weeks to make sure the lithium really had a positive effect, took hold. And literally once he gave me, once I was on lithium, I was like back to my old self. I mean, I'm running, I'm swimming, I'm hiking mountains, I'm lifting weights, I'm going in the lake for an hour. Um, and he said, yeah, you're in great shape. You have a green light, move to Florida. I'll hook you up with the VA in Florida. So we got a, we, um, we got a U-Haul and we moved our stuff and moved to Florida. And we got here just in time for Hurricane Matthew, which was <laughs> a monster hurricane. <laughs> Luckily, it didn't hit us straight on, but that was, yeah. a, that was an experience. Welcome to Florida. Here's a Cat 5 hurricane. Wow. Brutal. But That's we would say, story. I mean, our property didn't get damaged. So we rented for about the first two years. And then um, the house, we love the neighborhood. We're close to the beach. The town's great. It's got a great, cool, laid-back culture. You saw it. You know, it's got kind of an artsy, surfing, you know, hippie culture. But it's also got a lot of retirees, and then it's got a lot of smart people that work at NASA. Plus, you have the Air Force. It's it's a kind of a cool, eclectic town. It's a small town. You know, cool. fair amount to do for such a small place. You're close to Orlando. Uh, Patrick Air Force Base is right there. So we rented for two years, and our goal was that we would use Cocoa Beach, our rental house, as a springboard to go explore all over Florida and see what we liked. And we just loved Cocoa Beach, so we never went anywhere. We didn't explore. <laughs> then we bought a house, and the, the house we bought was right next door. <laughs> wow. So we really lucked out. Yeah. yeah. So it's great. We love it. That's a great story. I think that's that's my favorite part about your story because you're you're so happy and you're just living in paradise now, which is incredible. You know, we are I would say my wife and I are the happiest and the healthiest we've been in many, many years. And we just love it here. I mean, we have a cool house at the beach, we get the gym, <laughs> dancing classes, fun people. Like people are generally they're like, how can you not be fun and happy if you live in Cocoa Beach? It's like, <laughs> you just, you got to be fun and happy and friendly. Mm -hmm. So we've got great friends. They're fun. Maggie's got a whole group of friends that she really likes. I've got a group of friends I like. There's some intersection. <laughs> it's good. Like I do stuff with her and her friends. She sometimes does stuff with my dancing friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Can we dive? I have a few more questions, but I want to dive a little bit more into the stigma, which your your mission for your book is to kind of face the stigma of bipolar head on. So I know that 700,000 veterans experience bipolar disorder. Can you touch on why you wanted to reach people by telling your story? Yes. So there's been this thing about mental illness going back many, you know, centuries that it's weird it's spooky because you can't see it and it's wacky and it's craziness and it's depression and so for a long time for, for most of human history uh, there was a belief that there were these malign demons that were in the mind flying around that there was evil spirits and things that were creating mm -hmm. the evil spirit uh, the, the the mood disorders and we know that's not true i mean Scientifically, it's simply not true. There's a real biochemical, physiological functions going on that create it. But yet, in our society, lots of people, they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, they don't want to talk about it, they try to keep it a secret. Um, and that's just wrong, because that keeps millions of people from getting medical treatment. And most of these mood disorders 
once you get them diagnosed and you get on the right treatment, they're completely manageable and you can live a perfectly normal life with no issues at all. So what a shame that people are hiding in the shadows, miserably sick because they're ashamed and they have a stigma. So, um, and that's true large part in the military. The military, nobody wants to admit that they have a mental illness because they think it's a sign of weakness and they might get kicked out or lose their security clearance or that kind of thing. So my view is I know that I experienced it. I went from normal, you know, quote normal and happy and productive to completely crazy. I mean, it happened in my life. I didn't want it. I know it wasn't because of weakness or a bad character or a lack of willpower. It just happened. And, and I know how this thing works. And I said, hey, this stigma thing is really stupid. Like, why should there be a stigma? Why should I feel embarrassed? I mean, I wouldn't be embarrassed if I had cancer, or I had a heart attack or, you know, broken leg. I would just say, hey, I have a broken leg. Go to the doctor, get it treated get my leg healed and get on with my life. So therefore, why should I have any other, you know, feelings about bipolar? Just doesn't make any sense. So I said, you know, I'm in a, and I started telling people right away, but uh, last, I started meeting um, some, I started talking to some really cool people at the gym, mostly dance friends. And it turns out almost everybody has some kind of mental disorder of some time, like everybody or their family member has it or their mother or their friend or their next door neighbor. So we started talking about it and, and created this little kind of brain group, kind of, kind of the broken brain group. And we started getting together talking and I started writing a little bit and I told my whole story. And so people said, wow, that's really awesome. Thanks for telling me that you should write a book. And um, my son said, write a book. So I, about a year ago, I suddenly got the motivation to write a book. And I said, you know, I was an army general. I mean, you know, I'm an airborne ranger from the army. I was in combat, you know, super, you know, great athlete, sporty guy. I mean, I have like everything strong that you can have. And, and so, you know, like, I know I'm not like wimpy or weak or low willpower. I know that's not the case and I got it. So I have credit, a lot of credibility because I can say, hey, I'm an army general, you know, airborne ranger, fought in wars, tough guy. Um, I have bipolar disorder. I'm not ashamed of it. I, I got diagnosed. I got treated. I, for five years, I've had a great life. It's, I got to continue to defend myself against it. But you can too. You know, if you get a mental disorder, either you or someone in your family or a work, a colleague or something, a friend, go get medical help, get it treated. It's not easy, but get it treated and don't feel bad about it or ashamed. Just look at it like a broken arm or a broken leg and then live a great life. So that's, that's my attitude. So that's what I want this book to do. That's incredible. And I think you're going to reach so many people with your story and just your goals of that which is in amazing i'm so excited <laughs> good yeah can you talk a little bit more i know you were recently appointed to the soldier strong advisory board which is that's really cool can you talk a little bit more about that and how that kind of co coincides with your goals for your book yes so you know, I had, the book was a monumental effort and it, it took many, many months to write. And I appreciate you reading the manuscript. Um, and then I said, I had a little break in the action before it went to the publisher. I said, let me write an article, you know, a short article that's a mini version of the book. And I think it was about eight or nine pages long, wasn't that long, but it told the gist of the story. And I got that out. I specifically chose task and purpose because it's a military online journal that reaches a huge military audience and mental health is really really big within the military yeah. um, and so i thought okay I'll, I'll go to this group and generate you know energy and heat and passion and it did um, i mean i've gotten hundreds of uh, uh, messages on linkedin emails and so forth so hundreds of people have written to me and said all kinds of things. Hey, you're making a big difference, et cetera, et cetera. 
and a whole bunch of people wanted to talk to me and invite me to speak. I, I just got a, 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 a speaking engagement today with the Surgeon General of the Army, who's the head medical person, to talk to all their generals. So, and I'm getting you know requests to talk all the time. And then several podcasts. You were the first podcast request, but I had that one by J.T. Frank, <laughs> the, uh, the, ha- the Consequences of Habit, and mm-hmm. another one with this guy, Chris Meek, which is super strong. So Chris read the article. He sent me a note on LinkedIn. He said, hey, can you spare 20 minutes? I want to talk to you on the phone, tell you about Soldier Strong, and then we'll take it from there. So I talked to him on the phone. Looks like a great organization. It's a nonprofit. It benefits. It it focuses on wounded warriors with the invisible wounds of war. Read that brain injuries, you know, PTSD, uh, traumatic brain injury and other mental illnesses. And then he said, would you, he told me all about it, what they do. And they, they, he sort of taps into high tech medical solutions to bring the most high tech um, solutions to brain injuries. He said, Are you, would you be interested in being on our board of advisors? I said, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be honored to do it. And so, you know, we talked some more and then he got it approved by his you know, board and then they just released the um, announcement yesterday. So I'll do it. I'll give advice on all kinds of things, help them network, give advice on policy, um, speak, uh, probably do some writing for them and, and it'll be good. And I told him, I said, hey, uh, Chris, I, um, I spent much of my life doing administrative, logistical, financial work. Um, I don't want to do that anymore. It's too much work. But I'll speak and I'll write and all that because I like it. That's play. It's fun. It makes me happy. It raises my spirit. And uh, so he said, okay, sounds good. So I'll be on his board. And then he's going to do a um, podcast in May. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. I think that's a great new chapter for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got a guy, a real smart guy. He's helping me put together a, a really good website. Okay. That should be up and running soon. Very cool. So many new opportunities. Yeah. I have a big question. Do you know when your book is supposed to be published? Do you have a goal for that? Um. I do. So my, my agent is Rusty Robertson and she's a dynamo. I mean, a real fireball who just is moving out and she's very experienced. So she's working with uh, a big publisher right now. She feels real confident they're going to purchase the manuscript and want to publish the book. So if that works out, which I, she's pretty confident that it will, it will depend. The, the range is six to 12 months. So if they, it, it depends on what kind of books they're trying to get out at a certain time. Like if a, if a mental illness book is something they want right away, they could get me published within six months. If it's behind a bunch of other stuff, it could take 12 months. So it just, it just depends on, on their internal work schedule. <laughs> Interesting. I'm excited for you. I can't wait to see it come out. <laughs> I have one final question and I ask every guest this question. It's kind of a fun one, but it might, it might get you. So if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you not go? Oh boy. (laughs) It would be some of these countries with a really high terrorist threat where they're killing their population and they have a civil war going on. So there's, you know, there's a handful of countries in Africa and I don't want to say them because I might get the actual country wrong. And there's still Syria, there's still Afghanistan. These are just horrendous places that if you, as a you know, white person, American, you travel through or you, you end up, I mean, you could rapidly be killed rapidly be taking hot taken hostage held in a dingy prison uh in a horrible condition for years uh, mm-hmm. while they try to negotiate or get money for you and you could be tortured and you could be killed so some of those african countries uh i wouldn't want to go to um i wouldn't want to go to afghanistan i wouldn't want to go to um syria and there's probably some others, but those are a few that come right off the top of my head. 
thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you thinking of going there? <laughs> I was not thinking you'd go there, but I'm glad you did. That's a good warning. <laughs> thank you so much for being on my show. I'm so excited to see everything you're doing. Your story is honestly so incredible. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, Kara. And thanks for the invite and thanks for what you're doing. I mean, you're a real pro and you, um, you obviously did a ton of research and were super well prepared and you did a great job. You just kind of kept drawing the questions. The <laughs> it's fun working with you too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into Going Places. I hope you found Greg Martin's story inspiring and incredible and just a testament to the impact of mental illness, but also how you can come out of it. I mean, it was such an honor. Thank you so much, Greg Martin, for being on my show. I really feel like I gained a friend and an incredible human in my life from having him on my show. I appreciate you guys so much for tuning into Going Places. If you liked this episode, please leave a review, reach out to me on social media. I'm always around and I love to hear what you think about my episodes. Also, look out for Greg Martin's new book. It's coming out soon. He didn't really give a good date, but we'll see. He's gaining some traction. He was just on NPR. So if you want to hear more about his story, I will include a lot of links in the show notes, but always check him out. He's really changing the game and he's such an incredible resource and he's really creating a change for the stigma that's happening both in the military and out of the military. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you and I can't wait to see where you go. Bye. Thank you.